Okay, so uh, Genesis 39, here's what the word of God says. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. And the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. And he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. And when his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his whole household and he entrusted to, to his care everything that he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. So the blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in his house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Next slide. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one's greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day, he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. So she caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Have a seat. Okay. Well, today's story is about a man who's thrown into prison for doing the right thing. A man who's thrown into prison for doing the right thing. So the best way for me to sort of set this up is to share some of my own personal experience. And what I'm about to share with you, if you didn't believe me, I would, un I would understand. Like if you're like, eh, I think the pastor's lying about that, I'd get it. Because what I'm about to say is crazy, but I promise you that it's actually true. I have been detained for a crime I did not commit not once, but three separate times. The first time it happened to me, uh, I was living on Maui, which by the way, prayers for Maui. It's so tragic to see such a beautiful place, just devastated by fires. In fact, Preston is here today. Preston grew up in Lahaina and all of his family still lives in Lahaina. Our prayers are with you and your family, man. Cannot wait to see what God's gonna do to heal that land and to rebuild it. But much love to you, bro. Anyways, I'm on Maui. And um, I was in the parking lot of our apartment complex and uh, I was just walking back to my condo where I was with my roommates and everything else. And then out of nowhere, a guy who was high on some drug, I'm not sure what, he just came out of nowhere and he started attacking me. And he was just hating me repeatedly. And I had just learned about turning the other cheek and what that meant. And so I said, well, gosh, I, I, I looked at him and straight in the eyes multiple times like, man, I do not want to fight you. And it didn't do any good. He just kept hitting me and back of the head and on my back and all over the place. And I was determined, I am not going to fight this guy. And then one of the girls from the Bible college came around the corner and all of a sudden all that went out the window. My ego was involved and I decked the guy. <laughs> and he, he fell back and popped up a few seconds later, had kind of a 
bruised eye and all that. And all of his friends, too, a couple of his friends uh, also saw what was going on, and they came to his rescue. And so for a minute there, I was like fighting all kinds of guys, like all at once, until my roommates, thank the Lord, came out and came to my rescue. And that's when the fight actually died down, but somebody called the cops. And a few of the guys I had, I had like, one's got a bloody nose, another guy's got like a swollen eye. And so they cuffed me and threw me in the back of the police car. And if it weren't for the fact that I had all kinds of like, punch marks on the back of my back and back of my head and one person who happened to see the whole thing unfolding, I would have been arrested in that moment. So those moments that I spent in the back of the cop car, my heart was racing. I thought I was going to jail. The second time that happened, I was also living on Maui and um, I was riding my longboard out to the beach and a police officer pulled up and kind of cut me off and he said, hey, did you just beat somebody up? And I was like, no, I, I, I didn't. And he goes, I don't believe you. Get in the car. He made me leave my, my, my board there uh, next to the side of the road. And then he drove me to the scene of the crime where the victim and the victim's family is hanging out on the curb. And when we got there, they rolled down the window or he rolled down the window and was like, hey, uh, is this the guy who beat you up? And they go, no, he's over there and he's getting away. So... He boots me out of the car to go chase after the guy. Meanwhile, I'm like miles away from where he picked me up and I gotta walk back and wander my way back to uh, where my board was at and all that. It's a crazy story. Third time that this happened to me, I was actually living uh, back in Oregon, suburbs of Portland where I grew up and um, it was dark and rainy outside because it's Portland. And uh, so I, was, uh, I saw this guy on the side of the road. He's walking and he's um, getting drenched. And I thought, ah, maybe, maybe this guy needs a ride. So I pull over and I offer to give this guy a ride. He's like, no, I'm good, whatever. So I start pulling off and start going on my merry way. As it turns out, where I pulled over also was next to this guy's barn. And this guy had been robbed apparently recently. And so he jumped to the conclusion that I must have been the guy who robbed him before. And so he gets irate and he calls the police. Turns out he's good friends with the police chief in that area, the city of Hillsborough. And so he gets him on speed dial. And sure enough, within a few moments, my truck is just completely swarmed with all of these different police cars because they believed this guy. And so they pull me out of my truck at gunpoint, down on my knees. I got my hands behind my back. They toss me in the back of a police car and relocate me to a nearby parking lot where they interrogated me for like 30 minutes, which is kind of nuts. I mean, I think it's because I might give off like a really tough guy, bad boy vibe. <laughs> I think it's probably why this has happened so much. Wow, you guys got a huge kick out of that. That's, <laughs> it's kind of insulting actually. But if somebody's had a fair amount of experience with this kind of thing, being wrongfully accused is a desperate and helpless feeling. I, I, I didn't know how much trouble I was actually in. I didn't know if anyone was going to believe my story, if I was going to end up going to jail, if I get justice or what. But honestly, the actual consequences of my like brushes with the law were basically nothing. I... I uh, especially compared to what a lot of innocent people across our country who are locked up right now. I lost like maybe 30 minutes of my time. I was embarrassed and handcuffed and spoken to really aggressively. But that's basically it. I, I didn't do any time. I didn't lose my job. I, didn't, I don't have anything on my record or anything like that. At this point, they're just 
funny stories to amuse you. You know, me being handcuffed in the back of a car is just to amuse you at this point. But not in the moment. In the moment, it, it, it felt really extreme. The anger I felt towards the injustice of being wrongfully accused was extreme. But Joseph, he experienced real injustice. Not only is he innocent, he's actually the victim of the crime that he was wrongfully accused of. He's being sexually harassed by his boss's wife, and expressly because he did the right thing, he ended up spending several years in prison. So my job today is to show you that that is not an isolated incident or event in the Bible, but that the life of Joseph is telling a larger story about how God will overcome evil with good. That one day the ultimate savior will actually absorb the consequences of evil, even though he's innocent, and he'll release and give grace instead. So Joseph is not an outlier. This is actually an archetype in the story of the Bible. So here's how the story goes. Chapters 37 of Genesis were introduced to 17-year-old Joseph, and he's a good guy. He's just very immature. And so God makes him a promise through a series of dreams that he's going to become a great ruler. And last week I explored with you how those dreams are actually connected to the original blessing that God gave Adam and Eve in the Garden of Delight, where he says, take care of the earth and rule over it. That's the language in Genesis chapter 1. So in other words, what God is saying to Joseph is, good news, man. Through your life, we're getting this project back on track. You're going to be ruling with me to spread my vision of flourishing to all the earth. So that is really exciting and good news for Joseph. He's saying, listen, we're getting back to the Garden of Eden stuff, the good stuff that I had in mind from the beginning. But since Joseph is really immature at this point, he just has to tell his brothers about his dream. And because he does, his brothers actually hate him for it. So they hatch a plan to throw him into a pit, and eventually they traffic him uh, to Egypt. And this is, if you are here last week, you remember, this is the first example what the Bible calls exile. So instead of being lifted up and honored and blessed in the land that God had promised him, Joseph is actually being stripped of his dignity, and he's being forced down, and he is being forced away from God's blessing and into slavery. So the reality of, of Joseph's life is the opposite of what God had promised him. His life is the opposite of what God had promised him. And today we're discovering that Joseph, he becomes a slave in the house of Potiphar, um, who is this high-ranking official uh, of Pharaoh. Egypt was the undisputed world power at the time. So Potiphar is the captain of the guard, which means he's undeniably one of the most powerful men in the world at the time. And so the irony that we're meant to see in this is that God said that Joseph was going to be the one who was a great leader. He was supposed to be the leader, but instead he's a slave of a pagan ruler. It's even worse. He's like washing dishes or something like that. So I guess the first reflection for us to kind of contemplate together today is that sometimes in life you just feel defeated. You feel defeated, and you want to believe that God's word is true, and you want to hope in the reality that the kingdom of God is breaking in on the earth like he said it was, and yet you feel like the enemy is winning. 
And since I began my career as a pastor almost 17 years ago, people have been saying this about the Western church, that we're in decline. Secularism is quickly wiping out an entire generation of Jesus followers. And I get that because when you look at a lot of the research and data, and when you look at the largest Christian denominations throughout the world, it makes sense why people are afraid. Far fewer people are attending church in the 21st century than in the 20th century in America. But what, what I say to that is, number one, the data doesn't tell the full story. There's so much more going on there uh, than just the raw numbers. And number two, and this is important for our conversation today, when it comes to the promise of God and when it comes to the plan of God, he does not need the odds stacked in his favor in order to get the victory. And actually, from this story and many others throughout the biblical corpus, it would seem that he actually wants the odds stacked against him for two main reasons. The first one is this. He wants to cultivate faith in the hearts of his people. He wants to cultivate faith in the hearts of his people. Your faith muscle is not strengthened when God's plan appears easy and certain. That's not how you grow in faith. Your faith muscle grows when trusting God at his word requires a miracle. For example, Hudson Taylor is one of the famous missionaries to China. He counted three phases in great moves of God throughout history. Impossible, difficult, and done. I love that. I think that's such a great statement of true faith. So witnessing God's power against impossible odds, that's what actually grows your faith. So I think there's a much different and more important question that we need to be asking as a Western church. Maybe the reason why we're in a crisis of faith in the Western church is because we've been too busy analyzing our society's deconversion, but we haven't been asking God for any real miracles. And we haven't been praying with any kind of actual faith, or we haven't been praying prayers that require actual faith. That is the question that I would pose uh, to our society and to Christians in our world. The second reason why I believe God doesn't mind the odds stacked against him is because he actually gets way more glory when he pulls out a victory in the end. He gets way more glory. See, if God is all-powerful as we believe him to be, then there's no such thing as a difficult miracle for him. There's not a promise that he's made to you that's a long shot whether or not he can pull it off. Therefore, I think just like in the story of Abraham and Sarah, we've been tracking this motif throughout the story so far, God is taking his time and he's letting the story unfold, maybe on purpose, to increase the improbability of the miracle for Joseph. So when it finally happens, Joseph's character is, is mature enough to become a great ruler and God's glory in it is undeniable. And I think that's exactly what God's up to here. So sometimes you may actually be experiencing adversity so that God gets more glory out of your life. Now, I know that that doesn't bring you any comfort or anything. It's not, it's not meant to, actually. What it's meant to do is give you a little bit of purpose in your suffering and adversity. It does mean that there's actually an incredible future and an incredible reward if we're able to endure and be resilient during times where we're thrown into the pit as Joseph was. And I want you to pay attention to how this plays out in Joseph's story because it's extremely, uh, it's extremely profound and powerful and I think very beautiful. So we learn that this whole experience is God testing Joseph. This is a test 
of Joseph's faith. Now, I, I've made this point before. I think it's very important, though, that I reemphasize it here in case you didn't hear or maybe you forgot. That this does not mean that God is torturing Joseph. It doesn't even mean that God wants this kind of evil to happen to people. It means that God is able to use this sort of downward uh, spiral to test the quality of his faith and his character. So um, I've believed and said to you many times that God wants to bless people who are trustworthy with real spiritual authority and real leadership. And adversity going down into the pit is one of the ways that God proves our faith. And this is very important. For example, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11 says this, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. To those who've been trained by it. See, discipline has a training effect, and that's what God is using these moments uh, in your life for. Now, um, just to give you a for, for example, do you think that God wanted that man who attacked me uh, back in 2006 in, uh, in Hawaii? Do you think that God wanted that man to take drugs and come out and, and start fighting me? I, I don't think he did at all. But he definitely used that situation to test my character. And I actually failed that test. I failed that test pretty bad. Most of you know the story. Most, most of the people who know the story, they actually kind of give me a pass on that and say, you know what? I probably would have punched the guy too, right? Because when someone's attacking you, that's kind of what you do. But I know, looking back on that situation, I know that God was using that situation to test my heart. What it revealed in me is that the 19-year-old Andrew was way more committed to looking good in front of the ladies <laughs> than I was committed to turning the other cheek. And I said that I believed in the God of the scripture. I said I believed in Jesus as king. And he's the one who said, turn the other cheek. So this is like a training moment in my life. And hopefully now through that experience and many others, as I've reflected on that experience and many other experiences like it, where I have received unfair treatment, that this is actually, hopefully I'm now a kind of a person who can accept unfair treatment as a way of modeling Jesus' love for the world regardless of how it might look to the people that I want to impress. See, my ego was coming up against the ethic of Jesus, and at the time, my ego won out. And I would hope to believe that at this stage in my life, I would be able to accept unfair treatment as a way of modeling the love of Jesus towards the world. So that was the test for me. And so what I would say to you is this, don't resent or push back against the discipline of the Lord. Accept it, embrace it as God training you for righteousness. But the test that God gives uh, Joseph is something a bit different. Here's, here's his test. His, his test is, how will you handle disappointment? How will you handle being treated like a servant? How will you handle your unfulfilled dreams? See, based on those dreams, he expected his life to go in one direction. But the test, the test of his faith was about how he responded when it didn't go in that direction. It actually went the other way. And the temptation for him would have been to like lose his faith or to put in a half-hearted effort uh, with his work because he didn't see how his vocation was connected to his calling or God's promise. Or he was uh, tempted to complain to God or something like that. But what we learn about Joseph is that he passes the test with flying colors. 
text reveals that Joseph's faithful to his pagan master, even though he's pagan and, and doesn't have anything to do with the glory of God. And he's doing it at such a high level that Joseph just keeps getting promoted and keep getting promoted and keep getting promoted until he's the second in command of Potiphar's house. The scripture tells us that all that Potiphar has to worry about is what he's having for dinner. Everything else Joseph manages for him. Now, this is an example to us. This is probably another unpopular opinion in the 21st century. But Ephesians 6 verse 6 teaches us to obey our earthly bosses or masters, if you will. Verse 6 says, obey them, meaning your earthly bosses. Uh, not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because the Lord will reward each one of you for whatever good they do. So the challenge for you and for me is to see these opportunities that you have to serve others in your life as quiet, unseen acts of devotion to God and not to people. So when you serve the poor, when you love the outcast, when you go the extra mile for a coworker or someone in your life who kind of drives you crazy and kind of bugs you, these opportunities, I believe, are gold. I actually think these, the people that are difficult for you to love are God's, it's like a, a treasure for you. They're God's grace to you. They're God's gift to you because they're giving you an opportunity to be devoted to the Lord in quiet, unseen acts of righteousness. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount calls this uh, secret righteousness. And I think every, every person in my life who I greatly admire practices all kinds of secret righteousness, things that you would never see, but they're doing quietly uh, to honor the Lord. There's also another really beautiful thing that's going on here. The pit that Joseph's brothers throw him into, it becomes a metaphor in the rest of the Bible um, that represents hitting rock bottom. Instead of blessing, instead of honor, you're actually going in the other direction. You're being thrown down into the pit. And by the way, at the end of today's passage, he's thrown into another pit, a worse pit, a dungeon. That's where Potiphar puts him. And he sits there for years. But because he keeps the faith, God begins his very steady ascension out of the pit. And he actually becomes a ruler because he's faithful. He becomes a ruler. There's a bunch of things to notice here. Number one, God is preparing Jacob to be worthy of his calling. He's preparing Jacob to be worthy, or excuse me, Joseph to be worthy of his calling. When he started, he's just like a no-name dishwasher type person, but now he's a general manager. And it's kind of a modest rise, but he's excellent at his work. And so the very point is this. Be, even when he doesn't know it, or especially because he doesn't know it, God is doing something deep beneath the surface of his life. One day, God is going to promote him to be second in command of the whole empire. And right now, he's getting experience in management and leading people and being trusted with resources. As far as he knows, he's just trusting the Lord and doing his job. That's the whole point. He's trusting the Lord, doing his job. But beneath the surface, God is forging the inner strength that's required for him to handle authority, empower, and spiritual responsibility when he ascends to be a great ruler. And don't forget what Jesus says in the parable of the talents. He says, because you have been faithful with a little... I will make you faithful with much. This is a rule or principle in the kingdom of God. Number two thing that we learn from Joseph is that he's an example of trust and fidelity. So far, each generation in the family of God has kind of been a disappointment. 
You've got Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They have some shining moments, but the trajectory of their life is in the opposite wrong direction. For example, Jacob is Joseph's father. He is famous for not trusting God, even when God keeps blessing him. When God keeps blessing him, he's not trusting him. Joseph, on the other hand, is the opposite. He keeps trusting God, even though he keeps getting thrown into the pit. And, and whose example are we supposed to follow, would you say? Well, it's clear it's Joseph. Hebrews 11 says, anyone who comes to him must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. So Joseph is essentially saying this. He's like, yeah, it feels like I'm cursed right now. It doesn't feel like I'm blessed. It feels like I'm cursed. The reality of my situation is the opposite of what God had promised. But God said he was going to bless me. And my God said that he was going to make me a great ruler. So even though the pit is all I can see right now, I will still trust in him. And this becomes a metaphor throughout the entire Bible. For, exa for example, in the Psalms, it says in uh, Psalm 40, verse 2, they turn it into a song. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me, he heard my cry, and he lifted me out of the pit, out of the mud and mire, and he set my foot, my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. Also see Psalm 103, verse 2. See, some of us need to remember just simply who God is. The kind of God that he is, the fact that he doesn't go back on his word, he doesn't make a promise and then turn back on it. And then the second step is for us to just be brave. When you're in the pit, the call is to bravery. The call is to courage. We're going to trust the Lord enough that even when we're in the pit, our faith holds strong. Now, keep in mind that Joseph still has a long ways to go before he's out of the pit entirely. In fact, he's got roughly 13 or so years before he's out of the pit. But he is waiting on the Lord. Now, let me just give you a little piece of advice that my, my dad gave me a lot growing up. And at the time, I did not like to hear it, but he was totally right, which was this. Andrew, stop feeling sorry for yourself. <laughs> he said it all the time with that really calm demeanor that he has, and it was infuriating. But he was so right. He was so right. There's something about our generation and our culture, even though we have an amazing standard of living, we have so much in our favor. There's a deep dissatisfaction and disappointment that many people uh, are feeling about their lives. Unfulfilled dreams, um, like they're, they're not living into the hope of their callings and things like this, and they're just dissatisfied and disgruntled. And I see a lot of that in my work as a pastor. And I guess the point is that not that you wouldn't have people you can dialogue with and, and talk about your, your trouble and your pain and your suffering with. Definitely do that. But at the end of the day, don't adopt the mindset of a complainer. Don't become a grumbler. Because the reality is that even though your situation today isn't what you dreamt it would be, it does not mean that God is not coming through on his promise. In fact, he is coming through on his promise. So instead, when you're in the pit, wait on the Lord and be concerned about your faithfulness. That's the thing you can, you can control. You can control your faithfulness. You can't control the pit. You can't get yourself out of the pit. But you can control your faithfulness. And that's the invitation. Um, the thing that uh, I see uh, here that I'm just going to call the secret to Joseph's resilience, and this is the third thing we can learn from him. The secret from jo uh, Joseph's resilience is that the Lord is with him. Look at these five different examples in the passage that we read at the beginning. These are uh, instances in, in the passage where it talks about how the Lord was with Joseph, even though he was in deep pain. So 
uh, notice the progression. The Lord's with Joseph. Then Potiphar takes notice. It's like, man, Joseph's different. God is with him. I don't know how to explain. He's just a different guy than the rest of us. And so because of that, then he wins favor. Because his boss notices that God is with him, he wins favor. He says, I can trust this guy. And so all of Potiphar's house is blessed because Joseph's in charge. That's the kind of people we want to be, connected to the presence of God in such a way that the things that we put our hands to are flourishing and blessed. Even when he's in prison later, at the very end of today's passage, we learn that God is faithful to him in his steadfast love. And I would say the Lord's with you too. That's the takeaway here. The takeaway is that the Lord is with you in the exact same way that he is with Joseph. The Lord has given us his Holy Spirit of power. And this is why I have dedicated my life to passing along the simple practices of enjoying the Lord's presence because I think everything in the Christian life comes back to being connected to the presence of God. So when it comes to your resilience in times where you're in the pit, it's actually not about being tough. That's the one little modifier I would give to the don't stop feeling sorry to yourself for yourself comment, is that it's not actually about grittiness. It's not about that. It's actually about his presence and his steadfast love for you and you being connected to it. And then you can actually endure the pit. And it's about those things actually fuel your faith. They don't take from it. So, Practice the presence of God. And number four, and finally, this is the end here. The real test of your character comes when you're succeeding. The real test of your character comes when you're succeeding. Notice Proverbs 27, verse 12, or excuse me, 27, 21. If I lost you, come back, because this is important, especially if you're on the rise in your life. The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, but a man is tested by his praise. So the second part of Joseph's test is, a, is all about when he's on the rise. Now that he's successful, now that people know his name, now that he's receiving honor and accolade, now that he's getting promoted. See, the first part of Joseph's test is about staying obedient, having the attitude of servant in the pit. The second part of his test is about remaining humble and depending upon God in a position of authority. See, obscurity tests your faith, but power tests your ego. Will you stay humble? Will you believe your own hype? Will you reflect on the motives of your heart? That's the question at the heart of Joseph's second test. And he passes this test too. An even tougher test than before, I think. I think it's very, very much, much harder test. And um, many of you, especially if you grew up in the church here, familiar with this story, but uh, Joseph gets noticed by Potiphar's wife, and she just uh, wants to sleep with him, and Joseph says no, but she's persistent. She keeps coming back to him time and again, trying to tempt him into having sex with her. Now, it's clear to me, both throughout the whole library of Scripture, and in particularly here in Genesis 39, it's very, very clear what right and what wrong is. The Scripture is clear that sex is powerful, and the only relationship that's capable of handling its power tru- truly is marriage. So God puts restrictions around sex, not to spoil the fun, but to protect you and to guide you into a healthy and fulfilling sexual relationship. And by the way, if you're wondering if I'm uncomfortable talking about sex, the answer is yes, absolutely. 
super uncomfortable about talking about sex. Uh, I don't love particularly public speaking to begin with. I, like, I love the word. I love you. I want to honor the Lord. So that's why I teach. But uh, when I'm up here, my, basic, my baseline is I'm, like, I'm always kind of nervous. And I'm always kind of anxious. And then you add a conversation about sex on top of that. And I'm like, ugh, my mom's in the third row. It's like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> this is brutal. It's much, much worse. But on another note, somebody called me a wimp this week. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm going to talk about hard things in church on Sunday. <laughs> it's all it takes to bait me into doing dumb stuff like this. Okay. So the Bible's really clear on sex. It is. But in my experience, people rationalize moral compromise on the topic all the time. See, Joseph could have rationalized sleeping around many, many different ways. Like, for example, he could have said, hey, God said I was going to be a great ruler, but look at me. I'm just a slave in this guy's house. Why should I listen to him? Why should I obey him? Also, he's a young man. If you're a young man, you know that your sex drive is a powerful thing. You don't always feel in control of that. So he could have rationalized, listen, I'm trying over here. I'm doing my best, but she came on to me. I've heard that rationale several times myself. And then also, let's not forget that always popular, everybody's doing it. So why can't I? But Joseph, despite all of that, he's faithful, and he's actually victorious over sexual sin. Here's how he does it. We need to look at his strategy. You need a strategy to overcome this kind of temptation. He has a very distinctive strategy. Number one. He resists temptation. He says no to sin. And that works. That actually works for him. Because he's got willpower and devotion, much more than can be said than some of us. And it works until finally Potiphar's wife traps him in her room, grabs onto his clothes, and basically sexually harasses him, forces herself upon him. So in other words, a simple no means no is just like not going to do it in this situation. She's forcing herself on him. And so Joseph has to change his strategy. It's like the simple like resistance isn't going to work here anymore. So he ramps up his strategy. And in verse 12, it says, he left his garment in her hand, fled, and got out of the house. He got out of there. He, the, the urgency and the intensity of his strategy for resisting temptation had to change because the situation had changed. He's like, listen, either I'm sleeping with this woman, which I don't want to do, or I'm leaving with my clothes. I choose, or without my clothes. And he basically chose to leave without his clothes. So sexual temptation is not something, especially young men, but, but I think all of us, sexual temptation is not something that we can get away with like hanging around. We need to get aggressive like Joseph got aggressive with his temptation, which is why Joseph has become sort of the gold standard in the Bible on what to do in situations like this. For example, 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Also see 2 Timothy 2.22 and many others. So I doubt your boss's wife is like trying to pin you down for sex. I mean, I hope not. And actually, as I say that, it kind of came out tongue-in-cheek, but I know that, like, if the situation were different, and I know that there's actually been many of you who have been taken advantage of and been coerced into relationships that you don't want to be in. Joseph had the physical strength to get away from her, but I know that sometimes the situation is reversed, and that is just not the case. So I don't mean to, like, make light of anyone's situation, especially if you have been sexually harassed or sexually abused. I have nothing but just genuine compassion and sympathy for you. I believe the Lord wants to heal you. This is serious stuff. But 
all that to say, whether just because we're not in the exact same situation as Joseph, there is still plenty of temptation that we just need to straight up flee. We just got to be willing to flee. We live in a world where Potiphar's wife is everywhere, right? The age of the internet and the sexualization of modern culture has brought sexual temptation, I think, to a whole new level. Pornography is a multi-billion dollar year business. Last week, we talked about how the sex trade has become a massive global enterprise that exploits marginalized children all around the world, millions of them right now being trafficked. The latest, po- uh, uh, latest data, post-COVID data that I've seen uh, from Pure Desire says that over 80% of Christian men and almost 60% of Christian women admit to unwanted sexual behavior. Now, that's kind of a broader category, but I think what what's being said here. My guess is that this is talking about occasional or habitual porn use and things like masturbation. Now, I don't have time to fully explain all of this right now, but what this suggests to me is it's actually more, it's about more than just sex. It's actually about gratifying our sexual desires and how it's become a primary way that people worship the cult of self. This is actually about worship. Sex is not the problem. Sex drive is not the problem. The problem is sexual desire that's been distorted, turned inward so that sex becomes a self-centered form of idol worship. So instead of an expression of intimate love between married people, sex has become a way that I put myself first. It's a way that I gratify my desires in my flesh. And many, many, many people in the church are completely dominated by this sin. And deep down, you don't want to let your desires run the show. You don't want to be a slave to your desires, and yet you feel unable to resist the temptation. So pure desire recognizes this sort of toxic cycle when it comes to sexual sin. Shame keeps us silent. If I ask for help, my community is going to ostracize me, reject me, or shame me, or something like that. Or number, number two, feeling helpless or powerless keeps us stuck. I've been struggling for years. How could I possibly have victory now? It's been going on forever now. And then hopelessness sets in. I may be dealing with this my entire life. Why do I even bother trying to fight it? Again, this is a toxic cycle that just keeps people enslaved. And I can sympathize with those of you who are battling this kind of sexual sin. I know that for myself personally, I have to stay extremely vigilant so that I don't fall into the same patterns myself. But this is a fight that you can win, number one. And it's an extremely important part of your devotion to Jesus. We cannot tolerate idol worship in our hearts. We have to be undivided in our devotion to Jesus. So over the last couple of years here at Riverbend, I've seen multiple different people break that cycle of addiction and walk in purity. And it's a beautiful thing. It's not easy. It's actually very hard. Resisting and fleeing this kind of sexual temptation, especially if it's connected to the cult of self, it requires a multi-step process of surrendering ourselves fully to Jesus, dealing with our past, and then building on top of that new positive practices into our lives that give us the upper hand when we're dealing with these kinds of temptations. And uh, by the way, you're going to be hearing some of these stories over the next few months because we are officially, I'm happy to say, we are officially launching Pure Desire groups here at Riverbend, which has been in the works for a long time. It's going to be coming this fall. So if you're caught in this kind of uh, sexual sin that you don't want, uh, you're not alone. We are here for you. There is hope for you. 
much, much more to come on this kind of thing in, in the near future. But as a part of rolling out Pure Desire here at Riverbend, we're going to be sharing some of these stories, very courageous stories of people coming forward to talk about how they have experienced freedom by turning to Jesus. It's a beautiful thing, something to celebrate. You guys with me on that? Okay, cool. We're going to wrap this sucker up. Hang with me. So the, real, the, the final key here to Joseph's victory over temptation is this. Explains the part of his wife. How could I possibly disobey the Lord by going to bed with you? What does he mean by that? What he means by that is this. His relationship with the Lord meant more to him than the counterfeit version. So this works if you're single or if you're married. doesn't matter. The turning point in your victory over sexual sin comes when you actually love Fellowship with the Lord to the level that sacrificing communion with him for a cheap substitute feels like a terrible idea to you. feels like you're hijacking your life. And by the way, I've seen this happen multiple times uh, over the last couple of years here in our church, where over time in people's journey, they come awake to like the beauty of experiencing God's presence and intimacy with him. And suddenly they're not like trying really hard not to do something anymore. They're actually motivated in the right direction. They're motivated to stay with it because the real thing is more appealing to them than gratifying their desires. Psalm 63 says that because your love is better than life, my lips will praise you. And when you believe that from the heart and you've experienced that, then it changes you from the inside out. Again, everything in the Christian life comes back to enjoying God and enjoying his presence. So how is Joseph rewarded for passing his test? Wrongful imprisonment. That's how he's rewarded. Potiphar's wife hatches a story about him raping her. And then Potiphar throws him into another pit, the dungeon. Is this fair? No, it's not even close. But... God is working through the messed up evil and the injustice of Joseph's wrongful imprisonment to do something very important, to reposition Joseph so that his gifts will be used and so that he's in the right place when it's time for his next promotion. See, this is a critical gospel principle for us to get. Sometimes we're put in a pit because the Lord wants to reposition us to be in the next right place for, for, our, uh, for our next assignment. So um, Joseph is a very gifted man. And Joseph is about to do some of his best work while in prison. Some of his best work is done while in prison. Meaning that our gifts don't always take us to an island paradise. The heart of God is bent towards the oppressed. So if you're going to follow him, then you frankly just need to get used to the idea that he's going to call you to places that you would rather not go and call you to do things that you would rather not do. In fact, this is exactly how Jesus commissions Peter and Paul into their apostolic callings in John chapter 21 and Acts chapter 9. The first two primary major leaders in the early church were promised lives like Joseph by Jesus when he commissions them. So don't be shocked if the Lord begins to ask you to do things that you don't want to do, like talk in church about sex or many other things like that. And then finally, Joseph had to descend into another pit in order to become a great ruler. 
In order to become a great ruler, he had to descend into another pit. And again, the point is, he has no way of seeing it now. But the dungeon is the exact right spot for God to elevate him and to fulfill his very specific calling. And Joseph is not the exception in the Bible. God is actually using this story to establish an archetype of the kind of Savior who will one day redeem the world. Jesus. He is the ultimate suffering servant who is totally innocent, given a bogus trial, sentenced to death. Yet his crucifixion is not a defeat. It's the event that seals God's victory over evil and sin. And our response to that should be like, praise Jesus. He willingly went down into the pit. That's, by the way, the language that the Bible uses. Not because he was guilty, but because I'm guilty and you're guilty. And he went down to the pit willingly. And now he holds the keys to the real dungeon, death and Hades. And then the father lifted him up by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now he's ascended and seated at the right hand of God. And now he has all rulership and all dominion and all authority and all power over heaven and earth. That's who God is. That's who Jesus is. The parallels between Joseph and Jesus are uncanny. Essentially what he's trying to say, this is how I redeem. This is how I save the Lord. So praise the Lord for his love for you. Praise the Lord for what he was willing to do so that you could be saved. And finally, like Joseph, we need to get used to the idea that God is using your story too to point people to Jesus. So if you're in the pit, ask God to grow your faith. If you're on the rise, ask God to keep you faithful. And wherever you are, ask God to increase the glory that he gets from your life. Let's stand and let's pray together. Father, we just want to say uh, thank you. Thank you for this beautiful poetic story of how you have made and overcome evil with good. You made all things good. Now you have overcome evil with good. And we say thank you, God, for that. And we just ask you in the name of Jesus, would you catalyze our hearts for this kind of story? And would we be the kinds of people with the bravery and the courage to go down into the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil for you are with us. Don't, don't just uh, get us out of the pit, Lord. Give us everything you want to give us while we're here. God, increase the glory that you get from our lives. That means we're suffering in the pit. We accept that. We accept unfair treatment. We accept the rejection of others. We Accept the deflation of our ego for the sake of you being glorified and honored and praised. Some of us have been sort of living a life that is actually going in the direction of just kind of self-promotion. God is saying, hey, if you trust me, I'll promote you. If you follow me, I'll, I'll, I'll promote you. And I just want to encourage you, give you courage, give you 
bravery in this moment that the secret to resilience is that the Lord's with you. And I just want that for you. I want you to be resilient in the name of Jesus. So I just pray like, like Jesus prayed on the day he rose from the dead when he went to go visit his disciples. He said, my peace I give to you. Receive the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come. Give us courage. Give us bravery. Give us resilience, God. We can't survive the pit on our own strength. It's not through our grit and determination. It's through your spirit. It's through your steadfast love. So I just pray for my friends here in the name of Jesus that they would receive the steadfast love of the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.